The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 57, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Pray with me. Father, we do cry out to you, the one who was promised to fulfill your purpose for us. And we ask you to give us shelter and to save, to send forth your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And you have, his name is Jesus. You have sent out your love. You have sent out your faithfulness embodied. God the Son who became flesh, and we give you great thanks for that. Lord, I thank you for how you just mentally walked us quickly through the Scriptures to see you testifying on every page, Jesus, a coming Savior, and now the Savior who has come. We thank you for that and pray, Lord, that you would send him now afresh into our hearts today. We ask you, Father, to commission your Holy Spirit and tell him to come and be in this place in power, to open up your scriptures to us, to illumine our minds, to see something of the work that you have done and to be filled with courage because of that. Father, this is our need because we are frail human beings. We stand in need of your grace to work in us and to change us, and so we ask for that, Lord, to cause the name of Jesus to rise up in our minds and hearts and to change us for his glory and for the good of this, your church, we pray. Amen. By this point in the book of Acts, I would hope that we all have at least one thing clear. We are, we the church, are called, we are sent on a mission to make Jesus known. The very beginning of the book, we've talked about it repeatedly. You shall be my witnesses. That should be clear. We are on an assignment. But it is not that he has left us to fulfill that assignment in our own power. He has not just stuck us here and then left us alone. This book is the book of the acts of Christ through his spirit. In his people, yes. But it's the acts of Christ. He's at work. It is a story of the power of God. Now, we do have a role in that. And in order to fulfill that role, there is some barrier that we are going to have to face and continually overcome. Fear. It's not a a one-and-done thing that we look at this this barrier of fear and we deal with it and it's gone forever. We're going to have to face and continually overcome fear. Jesus himself told us in John 15 and 16 that in this world, as we are testifying to him, there's going to be much opportunity for fear because, ironically, it says something about the tragic nature of fallen humanity, that as we speak of God who has come near to offer grace and mercy in love, 
that the world will repeatedly reject that and reject us as messengers of it. So there's going to be much opportunity for fear. And we're going to have to face that and overcome it continually if we are going to boldly and wisely and calmly and graciously and lovingly make Jesus an issue. We're to be bold, which does not mean obnoxious, which does not mean confrontational in put standoffish ways, does not mean boastful, does not mean arrogant. Bold is joined to calm and loving and gracious and bold. And if we're going to do that, we've got to face fear. That's what we're going to look at today as we look at Paul's second trial in the book of Acts. For the last several weeks, we've been following Paul as he's moved through the Mediterranean, moving towards Jerusalem. And he's come into the city a few weeks back, met with the leaders of the Jerusalem church. We're all Jews, of course. Become Christians. He met with them and they talked about what God had done around the world amongst the nations and then about what was going on in Jerusalem. And that had led him to undertake voluntarily to fulfill some vows and go to the temple regularly. And while in the temple, some of his opponents, some of Paul's opponents, had found him there, had started a riot, had apprehended him and were beginning to beat him to death. But just in the nick of time, Paul was rescued by Roman soldiers who rushed down from their barracks, which was attached to the temple. They'd rushed down some steps into the temple courtyard and had rescued him. They'd broken up the riot, not knowing what was going on. They'd arrested Paul, put him in chains, and were carrying him back up the stairs when Paul stopped them and asked, can I speak to the crowd? He was given permission, and he offered a defense, an explanation of what he's doing and why he's doing it. That is essentially the first of Paul's trials in Jerusalem. And we looked at that last time we were in Acts two weeks ago. And in that defense that he offers to this angry crowd, he's stressing and emphasizing, trying to be very clear that none of what I'm doing and none of what I'm preaching has its origin in me. I didn't make any of this up. I didn't dream any of this up. I didn't go looking for any of this. In fact, I was quite content. I was thoroughly devout, zealous for the faith of our fathers. I loved and trusted in the God of the Scriptures, but then that God intervened in my life. And he showed me that he had raised up this Jesus as the Messiah, and then he raised me up to be his messenger to the nations to tell them about this Messiah. And at the mention of the nations, the crowd erupted in fury calling out for his death. And that prompted the Roman to haul him into the barracks and get prepared to beat him, which was illegal given that he was a Roman citizen. So we saw how that was all cleared up and Paul was given some liberty but yet still under arrest because the Roman doesn't really know what's going on. He needs to sort this out, this Roman commander. Which brings us to today's text. He thinks that if I'm not going to get an answer from the crowd, perhaps I'll assemble the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and ask them what what the situation is. So that's what he does today, and that's what we're going to look at, Paul's second trial before the Sanhedrin today. I'll be reading essentially all of chapter 23 with a couple of verses at at the end of chapter 22 as introduction. So follow with me as I read Acts 22, verse 30, through the end of chapter 23. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He, the Roman tribune, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And 
Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to see you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him when he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went to enter the barracks and told Paul, And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. The day after the riot, so it's the very next day, Paul's just been beaten the day before, and now he's going to be set in front of the Sanhedrin as the Roman tribune attempts to figure out what exactly is going on. Now, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. It was, had some local authority, though obviously it was beneath the authority of Rome. And it was made up of 70 leaders, 70 rulers, presided over by a high priest, the high priest. And at this particular time in history, the high priest is a, name by Anan, a man by the name of Ananias. And by all accounts in history, this Ananias is a scoundrel. History outside of the Bible records what he was like. He was greedy, he was corrupt, he was violent and mean, he was a Roman collaborator. Everybody hated him. And in fact, ten years after this point, he's going to be killed by Jews. The Jewish people didn't like him at all. So that's the kind of guy who is the high priest at this time, presiding over the Sanhedrin. And there's a great bit of irony here that this man thoroughly worldly and thoroughly wicked is going to sit in judgment over Paul as to whether or not he keeps the law. This is bald-faced hypocrisy and everybody knows it. But that's the trial. That's what's going to happen. And so Paul stands there and verse 1, he begins his defense by asserting that he has always lived before God in good conscience, even now as a Christian. Which does not mean that he's saying that he's sinless. It means that he's not double-minded like some people around here. He might get a little bit of a stab in that. He knows who he's talking to. I have lived in good conscience before God. Meaning, my whole life, what I believe that God has revealed, what he has said and taught, I have earnestly tried to keep that. Not perfectly by any stretch. But it has been my standard that I have held my life to. Before when I was a Jew, I was convinced that what God had revealed was in the Scriptures, and I held to them. And then something happened where I was convinced that God had revealed even more still, and I held to that. And I have lived my whole life faithful to the law, faithful to Moses, and now faithful to Jesus. Whack! The high priest orders somebody standing next to him to strike him across the mouth for the blasphemy. And perhaps because of a little dig in it. You're claiming as a Christian that you've lived in fidelity to God as you worship this crucified criminal Jesus? You're claiming that someone who walked the earth and claimed to be deity, you can worship in good conscience before God. You liar. Strike him. Which is contrary to the law itself. To strike someone who's not even technically accused, let alone condemned, but is now going to be punished? That's forbidden in the law, and we see a little bit of Paul's impetuous nature when he lets him know it. Lashes out at him, calls him a whitewashed wall. But if you think of an old wall, 
that's decrepit, that's kind of leaning over and the mortar's breaking away and the bricks are starting to erode and there's stuff growing on it and you put some white paint on it so that it looks nice. But it's still a decrepit old wall that's going to fall down. That's what he's calling this guy. You look all nice and high and mighty there, but we all know the truth. Which is true, but not the sort of thing that God allows you to say to the high priest. And the high priest lets him know that, And Paul responds with self-incriminating biblical evidence. You know, you're right. I shouldn't say that to the high priest. In fact, he quotes the scripture that forbids it. And he does explain, though, I didn't know you were the high priest, which has caused a lot of people to wonder, how could Paul not know he's the high priest? There have been a number of suggestions. Perhaps he was looking away and he didn't know which person ordered that striking. Perhaps he's being further kind of ironic here. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you were the high priest because surely the high priest would want to hold the law and not order me to be struck. So my mistake, I didn't think you could possibly be the priest. Maybe that's what he's saying. It's it's not clear. But what is clear is that Paul comes back into line with the scriptures and says, I want to live in accordance with the law. And I violated it. I'm sorry. And then he changes his tactics. Realizing the makeup of the Sanhedrin, he does something that's very shrewd. The Sanhedrin is mixed up, is, is part of a mixed, it's a mixed group of mostly people from this religious party called the Sadducees, and a minority was from a religious party called the Pharisees, and they were kind of in opposition to each other. And so seeing that, he does something that's shrewd and causes the trial to implode without actually coming to any verdict on him. But it's more than just like tactically clever. There's a little more going on here. He's striking upon a difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, notice that Luke explains to his audience, because they, like a lot of us, aren't going to know the difference between these two groups. But the basic difference between the two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, is that one group, the majority group, the Sadducees, didn't believe in the supernatural realm, or very minimally believed in the supernatural realm. They believed in God, of course, but not things like the resurrection and spirits and angels and whatnot. And so right off, there are a whole bunch of things that Christians assert and are preaching that they rule out out of hand. No, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because nobody rises from the dead. No, an angel didn't speak to you because there aren't such things. So they're a couple steps removed. Pharisees, on the other hand, are much closer to Christianity and that they believe in all of these things. For them, the issue is, did Jesus rise or not? We know people rise. Did Jesus? That's a step closer. Pharisees could and did become Christians and remain Pharisees. They had to understand some things about the law a little differently, but they could still fundamentally hold to their Pharisaism Acts chapter 15 records as much, that there are Pharisees who are Christians. Paul is from that background, and he raises this issue now in this trial to draw some of the Pharisees. This is evangelism in the midst of a trial. It's also very shrewd. But he calls out, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, and here's the problem. Here's why I'm on trial. Two things. I'm here because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. 
me rephrase that to make it clear. I'm here because of the hope of the people of Israel that brings that is brought to fulfillment when the dead are raised. That's the problem that I believe in the hope and the resurrection. And that has an interesting effect of causing some of the Pharisees to defend him. Verse 9 says that it draws some of them, not all of them, but it draws some of them to vigorously dispute in his favor. That's an important step. They're not agreeing with him, but they are drawn to say, so is this really the issue? You mean the problem that people have with you is that you think that what we're talking about, what we're hoping has been fulfilled? That's the problem? Well, maybe we should listen to that. Could be. They're not saying, look at verse 9, they're not saying, we agree with Paul. They're saying, what if it's true? Maybe we should listen. And the Sadducees are saying, no, we shouldn't. There's been a movement made by some Pharisees. So this is an evangelistic ploy as well as a tactical ploy that disrupts this trial and it collapses into an argument and the tribune rescues Paul and pulls him out of it again takes him back to the barracks and that night Paul's sitting there in a very human way afraid and we know he's afraid because Jesus comes and says take courage but he's sitting there he was just so bold at this trial why is he afraid well because he's thinking this through I'm still in custody there are still a majority of people out there who really don't like me I keep getting put in their presence and there's violence all around. It takes one guy with a knife and I'm done. Or it takes this Roman official to say, this, is, this guy is a lightning rod that I don't need. And for him to go the route of Pilate and just wash his hands of this and I'm done. I wonder what tomorrow holds. And he's afraid. In verse 11, Jesus comes and stands next to him and speaks to him courage. He says, take courage. It is necessary. The grammar there, it is required in the plan of God. You must preach in Rome just like you've done here. He's telling him something. He's promising, assuring something. You will not die here. I am assuring that you will make it all the way to Rome and preach about me there. Take courage. You're not going to die here. But the Jews will try. In verses 12 and following, record how they try. There's a plot that's hatched. You can read about all the details there. It's hatched in secret. It involves this high priest and a number of the members of the Sanhedrin. And what we're reading here, there's all kinds of details. And it's really easy to say, you know, I really didn't care to know all those details. But what we're reading is how human beings make decisions and actions and things happen. But it's set up by the fact that God is superintending over all of it to bring about his desired purpose of protecting Paul. How is it that Paul's nephew finds out about this plot? This is a little boy. He's three times called young, and when the tribune listens to him, he takes him by the hand and walks him out. You don't do that with teenagers. Grab them by the hand and lead them away. Speak to them in private. This is a boy. How in the world does he find out about this plot? And how in the world does he gain access to the barracks and to Paul and then talk to the Roman ruler over the whole city, the tribune? the providence of God, assuring that it comes to pass. 
And the providence of God assures that the Roman is still intensely concerned over justice and order, and so he acts quickly to protect Paul. And he writes a letter that while it kind of shades the details to protect him, notice how the the letter omits the fact that I was about to flog him, kind of changes the details a little bit about when he found out that he was a Roman citizen. It is fundamentally accurate, and it carefully records this man is innocent. Blaspheming or degrading the temple was worthy of death. And this tribune's making clear he didn't do anything like that. I've looked into that, and I've cleared that up. He has not in any, in any way desecrated the temple. He hasn't done anything that's worthy of imprisonment, imprisonment or death. That's important. And he sends him on. And so, by the end of the passage, we have God, who has protected Paul, kept his promise, protected Paul through all the various intricacies of human action and decision, and brought him in the safety of Rome to Caesarea, some distance away from Jerusalem, kind of pulled him out of the fire. And he's there, and what we're going to see in the following chapters is that he's going to testify to Christ there too. That's the passage for the day. We're going to be focusing on the issue that's raised by Jesus when he comes and speaks to Paul. Courage. Courage in the midst of testifying to Christ going to be the focus for this day. And I'm going to make two observations, two contributing components, if you will, to courage, and I'm going to tie them together very briefly at the end. So two observations about courage in witness. First one, I find it when I look at Paul before the Sanhedrin and think about what he said there. So here's my first observation. Put it in a command form. Be courageous. The gospel is true. That's simple. Be courageous. The gospel is true. In the face of hostility or danger or threat or trial, continue to proclaim it because it's true. Now, obviously, in this context, in the context of the whole book of Acts, what we're, what we're dealing with is proclaiming Jesus, making him an issue. This is all about witness. So I'm going to expand a little bit later. I'm going to expand the the bit about courage to talk about a few other things that we can be courageous in the midst of. We're going to be focusing first on the main context of gospel witness. Paul's certainly courageous here on trial. And verses 1 and 6 give us some insight into why. He's He's convinced He is utterly persuaded that what he is talking about is true. I've lived my whole, he says, verse 1, I've lived my whole life in good conscience before God. I'm convinced that what God has revealed, I have followed always. And why am I convinced of that now? Because I'm convinced that the hope that was fulfilled in the resurrection has come about because the resurrection has begun. The hope that our fathers talked about, that they held out in all the scriptures, has come to pass now. And I'm totally convinced of that. And so I will proudly and boldly proclaim it. That's the root of his boldness here. Now, I'm quite aware that just because Paul's convinced of it doesn't mean it's true. 
it's very easy to be convinced of things that aren't true. So the fact that Paul says, I've lived in good conscience and that I'm persuaded that the hope and the resurrection happened, that doesn't mean it's true. The trial breaks down before he has a chance to offer evidence for that here. That's in the previous chapter. Right now we're looking for what's the root of his courage? How can he be so bold in proclaiming this? And why he can be so bold in proclaiming it is that he's confident that he's standing with God in the truth. And what he's saying is the message that God has for people. Why is he convinced of that? Well, that's the previous chapter. Fundamentally, he's convinced that the hope and the resurrection has happened because he's met the resurrected Jesus. Is that not obvious? He's convinced the resurrection has happened because he had a conversation with Jesus on the road to Damascus and then again in the temple. He's going to have another one here in a couple of verses. He says, I did not think this was at all possible, but something happened. I met this one who was crucified, condemned by God, and is now raised again, and I'm talking to him. And he explains to me that he is the Christ. And then I saw in the scriptures everywhere. He could have walked down, the narrator said this morning, he could have walked down that path and did with people. I saw it everywhere in the scriptures. The hope, we all know, he's talking to people, we all know that the hope was held out for the time of Messiah. And I came to see that Messiah would be a crucified servant. I saw it in the book of Isaiah, that he'd be crucified to bear the iniquity of the people of God. And I saw it in the Psalms, from the words of David, that he would be raised again from the dead. And I saw it in Joel, that when that happened, the Spirit would be poured out on people. That's happened. That's happened. So I'm convinced that it's true. We live right now in the time of the hope. It has begun in the resurrection, which has happened in Jesus. The gospel is true. Paul's utterly persuaded of that. Jesus is the only way to the Father. The cross does what it said it did, provides payment for sin. He is alive. He will come to judge. People need to hear this message. Can be saved by this message. Will find in it their greatest joy and without it stand condemned in misery. So let me pause there and say, what I'm trying to press here is that the gospel is true. And I, I hope that most of us here are kind of thinking, yeah. yeah, I hope. I mean, I've believed in it. I hope it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's true. Is there more to this or not? Well, you know what the strange thing about Christianity is that there isn't any more to it. Of course there is. There's lots. But it really boils down to a couple of really simple, basic things. Jesus is God or he isn't. He rose or he didn't. You kind of got to get in one of those two camps. And if you're in this camp, it changes everything. The problem is that most of us are intellectually in this camp and kind of walk around day by day over here in this camp. 
That's the problem. You know all this. But if you're anything like me, you rarely think about it. If Jesus is who he said he is, if the gospel is what it says it is, there are some radical implications of that. It means something. Think about for you for a moment. If the gospel's true, which it is, if you've trusted in Christ, if, that is, if you've placed your faith only in Jesus and his death on the cross to pay for your sin, if you haven't done that, you're not a Christian. But if you've trusted Christ alone on the cross, then you are his child. He has adopted you into his family, and he says to you, I am for you. Who in the world can be against you? If God be for us, who can be against us? Martin Luther, commenting on verses like that, and there are a few verses like that, said, of course it doesn't mean that nobody's going to be against us. Everybody's going to be against us. What it means is that who can be successfully against you? So think of these two camps. If it's true, who in the world can be against you? And everybody's going to say, yes, of course I know. But don't we live over here terrified of everybody who's against us? Don't we? There's something wrong with that. What I'm encouraging you here with is the simple point that this is true. Be courageous. God stands at your side, willing and more than able to uphold you. To uphold you in the face of all kinds of threat and trial and opposition. It's true. The gospel is true. He is strong to save you and through you to save others, to protect you from all threat, to carry you through. He has promised as such. It means something for you and God. And it also means something for you and other people. What does it mean for you and other people? Well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, since we have this hope, he's just been talking about the gospel, since we have this hope, we are very bold. Notice in Paul's mind, the, the truth of the gospel and boldness are connected. Having this hope, we are very bold, 2 Corinthians 3.12. It means that you can sit down with people and be very bold. Not afraid of them or intimidated by them. And it also means that you don't need to fear what you don't know. That you don't need to fear that they're going to come up with something that's going to defeat your case. It might, it might puzzle you because you don't know everything. That's true. But it's not going to defeat the gospel. You don't need to be afraid of that. And you don't need to manipulate it. You don't need to turn it to make it more palatable. And you don't need to deceive people and trick them. Get them to believe something that's not the gospel so as to kind of bring them along and bring the gospel in later sometime. I just quoted Paul from 2 Corinthians 3. Move a little further down into 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Listen to what Paul says there. He's talking about, again, the gospel. Having the gospel, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
because the gospel is true, we run from all kinds of deceit and manipulation and cunning and by the simple statement of the truth. We leave people to deal with God. They're not all going to see it for sure, but God, as he continues on, is going to shine light into people's hearts. What this means, the gospel is true, so you can be courageous because, to put it simply, God's got your back, but you can also be bold and courageous because you don't have anything to be afraid of or ashamed of, and what you're saying, people need to hear. A lot of times, I think, we, we kind of we hide in fear because we're fundamentally afraid of what we don't know. They're going to say something, and I'm not going to know the answer to it. They're going to ask me a question that's going to kind of unsettle me a little bit. If you want to alleviate that, one of the things you can do is get into some apologetic material. Apologetics, we talked about this before. It's essentially the defense of Christianity. There are all kinds of books Articles, from time to time we conduct classes here on Sunday morning that can help you understand the gospel better, can help you kind of reason through what other people say about it, objections they have, concerns they have about it. That material is great for Christians to read for themselves. If you want to pursue that further, talk to me later. I can point you in some directions. Familiarize yourself with the gospel. Understand people, but engage them totally above board not afraid, confident that this is true and that God stands beside you, securing you and protecting you. Be courageous. The gospel is true. Live over here always where you mentally already are. Live here. I've already started to move towards the second observation, talking about how if the gospel's true, then God is for you. That connects pretty well to the second observation, which comes from verse 11. Here's the second thing for this morning. Be courageous. God's sovereign presence is promised. God's sovereign presence is promised. The word sovereign is important there because he's not just going to be present kind of rooting you on. I'll be there for you. Good luck. Not that. He is the sovereign of the universe, which means he's an absolute authority. Not a single thing happens anywhere that does not pass through his hands. That does not mean that he's the author of sin. People bear responsibility for things they do, but nobody does anything apart from God filtering it and in some way approving it. A lot of philosophy behind that. But you have to know that sovereign means over everything. That's who he is, and he's promised, I am with you. Promised it. Here's how he says it to Paul, verse 11. Despite the fact that Paul's thoroughly convinced of the truth of the gospel, our first observation, what he finds is that by the end of the day, as he's lying alone down at night in, on some cell somewhere, he finds that he's afraid because you know what? He's also a human. And he's thinking this through, all the possibilities. That's what happens to us, isn't it? At night, when all the noise goes away, all the possibilities start firing in our minds. 
and a whole bunch of possibilities are not good for Paul at this point. We know he's afraid because of what Jesus says. Take courage. He says to him, a promise. You're going to bear witness in Rome. So he tells him something of the future. And it would be very easy for us to stop there and say, oh, well, obviously the reason that Paul can be courageous is that he knows the future. Which is part of it, but there's a little bit more than that. And and the little bit more is the part that's helpful to us because we don't often know the future. And Paul doesn't even know all the future. There's going to be a lot. there, There are years between now and the time he gets to Rome. He's going to be traveling here and there on trial. He's going to be on a boat. He's going to be shipwrecked. He's going to be bitten by a snake. All kinds of stuff that's going to be life-threatening is going to happen to him. He doesn't know any of that. Most of it would probably be frightening. He doesn't know all the future. We don't know all the future. But what's beneath that is what is supposed to be encouraging to us and give us courage. When God promises something about the future, like he does here, He is also making a statement about himself. When he says, this is what's going to happen in the future, there is always at least an implied and sometimes an explicit statement along these lines. This is what's going to happen in the future, and I know that because I'm the one who controls the future. I'm the one who reigns over all of it and brings everything to pass. That's why I can tell you this is what's going to happen. It's always implied, often explicit. In our verse, it's in the last half of verse 11. It's in the phrase that, that's that phrase of divine necessity. So you must testify also in Rome. He does not say, as you have testified in Jerusalem, so also it would be nice if you could manage to do that in Rome as well. It's not a wish. And it's not even a simple statement of a known fact. I happen to know that you will also go to Rome. Because I see everything from some detached viewpoint. Grammatically, it is a divine, divinely necessary reality. This must happen. It is in the plan of God and will for sure come to pass because God's the one who holds this plan together. So he's making a statement not only about the future, but also about himself and that he is the one who reigns over everything, brings everything to pass, such that if he tells you something, he brings it about. And the verses following, 12 to 35, show us that. It's the providence of God over all this. None of this is random. It's none of them making plans to go and overhear these guys in case they're hatching a plot against Paul. This is a little boy. Not thinking on that level. He, in a, he doesn't carry his own authority that can get him into the barracks. God's at work in this. Showing how he brings about his promise. Showing his sovereignty. The main thing we need to see here, we rarely know the future. But God wants to be very clear to us about who holds the future. Our hope is not fixed on, and our courage is not derived from the fact that we know how everything's going to play out. Our hope and our courage is fastened to the fact that we know the one who does and who reigns over it all, who is sovereign. 
He's that kind of God in the lives of all of his people, including us. Now, the present context here is one of courage in witness. And so I want to be really clear about that and say, courage in witness is tied to the fact that I don't know what's going to happen when these words come out of my mouth, but God does, and he is in charge of it. I don't know if it's going to lead to conversion or violence. I don't know which extreme here. But God does, and the gospel is true, so God is for me, always doing good in my life. That's the the context of courage in witness, and I want to be clear about that. But I really think I should take an opportunity to apply this to some other situations, particularly the economic situation in our country right now. Talking about courage in the midst of this environment. We're right here right now and look in the book of Acts talking about witness. But if you, if you take your mind out for a second or walk out the door, fear seems to be the word of the day. And it's not fear about witnessing. It's fear about money. Everywhere. I imagine for some of us we have sufficient resources or the types of jobs where we we feel somewhat immune to this sort of thing, but I don't think that any of us actually are. I'm no economist, so nothing I'm going to say here is going to be economically sound. Don't don't invest according to this. But But the reality is the housing bubbles finally burst. The markets are in total chaos. This country is $10 trillion in debt, and the clock in Times Square is running as fast as it can. People, I've read in the paper where economists, people who supposedly do know something, are predicting an extended recession in this country like we haven't seen in 25 years. Is that going to happen? I have no idea. It might be over next month. Or it might take years to be over. I don't know. But a lot of people are afraid. It's affecting people, and and it probably has affected people here in our congregation. And I suspect that in time it will affect nearly all of us. And the problem is that we are very prone in a situation like this to be like Paul in the first part of verse 11, lying in bed at night thinking about the what-ifs. All the possibilities, or maybe the realities, running through our minds. And the questions are coming. And we're looking at things and thinking, what if the market doesn't recover in time and my retirement is gone? Everybody talks about how the market's going to come back. What if you don't have that many years? What if you're living on your retirement right now and you don't have that many years for the market to come back? What if my savings runs out before business picks back up or before I get rehired? What if your dad doesn't get a job or has just lost the one he had? What if you lose your house? Could happen. I don't know if it'll happen or not. Could. What if you can't afford college? You graduate this year from high school, the high school degree, intend to go to college, and mom and dad have to say, you know, that's just not going to happen. Then what do you do? I don't know. Do you? No, we don't. All kinds of what ifs. I'm no economist, I have no idea what's going to happen with all that stuff. 
But something's going to happen. It would seem to me that we can't be $10 trillion in debt and never pay up. Maybe that's possible. I'm not certain. It is highly possible, I would also suggest, that God would take us through hardship on purpose. We should not hold out hope for the world to economically fall apart and us to be maintained financially sound and secure. Some people argue that they're deluded. It's not in the Bible, it's not the gospel. On the contrary, the Bible says things like judgment begins in the church. First Peter talks about how judgment begins with the elders in a church even. There's a pattern in the Bible of God taking his people through suffering along with others, sometimes even first. Why? Because he hates his people? No way. So as to say something to the world as his people suffer and are sustained by him. So people can learn something as they watch about God who upholds. So the watching world can see that for those folks, they lost everything and Christ was enough. I lose everything and I don't have that. Hmm. I don't know that God will do that, but he has done that before and may well do it again. How do you be courageous in that kind of an environment? Not by realizing, oh, you know what, the market's going to come back eventually anyway. It'll be okay. No. Not like that. You be courageous in an environment like that by realizing the sovereign presence of God is promised to me. I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's in a context about money even. In Hebrews. He has sworn. He has sworn and he has proven it at the cross that he stands with his people. Sometimes to deliver them out of trouble and perhaps that will happen now. Oftentimes to deliver them through trouble. To refine us and to testify to those around who actually is the sustainer of the human heart. Not George Washington or Ben Franklin. Jesus Christ. The gospel is true, brothers and sisters. Be courageous. The sovereign presence of God is promised to you. And he holds the future in his hands. All the details. Including you. You have him. What is there to be afraid of? Plenty on one level. And on another level, nothing at all. I don't mean to diminish the the plenty on the one level, but I mean to bring in the nothing at all and force them together in your mind that you might be sorrowing, but ever rejoicing. The gospel is true and his presence is promised. Take heart. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for what is a rock-solid assurance. You have done something decisive in your Son. You crucified Him. You sent Him, you crucified Him, and you raised Him, and He reigns. We know that because you have told us, and we know what you have told us is true because you've given us the Spirit. You've illumined our minds, given us grace to see, and we praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. You would help us who are your people to resolve the the split personality that we often wrestle with of knowing things in our minds and walking as if they aren't true. Push those worlds together in our minds, I pray, Lord. Do it in mine. Do it in the minds and hearts of my brothers and sisters here. And Lord, for those who are not yet Christians and are here in our presence today, would you speak to them about how you can deal with their fears? About how you are a gracious sustainer and you will welcome them in Christ if they'll trust Him. Speak, Lord, I pray. Open their eyes to the gospel. Save and deliver us all. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.